Heavenly Father, thank you so much that really you are holy. You are set apart. You are not like us, which means that you, God, have the power and the authority to do what we never could do. God, you are the reason why we pray, and we want to hear from you. So maybe just right here in this moment, as you sit here in a posture of prayer, in your mind, you can begin to have the conversation or the thought with God how His holiness, His love, His transcendence, His his power and might have protected you all the days of your life. Maybe for just a moment, you can let that that wash over you as you begin to hear his word, recognize who you are hearing from. You are holy. You are not like us. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are just. You are good. You are kind. You are loving. In your holiness, you condescended yourself and put on flesh to live our perfect life, our holy life, the life we should have lived. You lived our life in our place, died our death instead of us. You didn't just die for us, Jesus. You died instead of us. You raised from the dead with that great, beautiful phrase, to die. it is finished. You defeated death. And as you went and as you ascended to the Father 40 days later, you gave us your spirit to live inside of us to be the temple where we get to meet with you forever and ever and ever. You are holy. You are good. And out of the overflow of that holiness, we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Grab your Bibles if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do. Meet me over in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start a new sermon series today called Teach Us to Pray. Uh, I want to walk through for the next several weeks the Lord's Prayer. All right, we call it Teach Us to Pray because that's exactly what Jesus does. It's the one time in all the Bible that he directs his disciples after they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the things that I find fascinating is that the way that Jesus teaches them to pray is actually the same model of prayer that you see throughout Scripture. Now, let me begin by a confession, and here's my confession to you. I am a work in progress. When it comes to prayer, prayer is not natural to me. My, my background growing up, I grew up in a non-Christian home where prayer was not modeled. Matter of fact, the, the, the closest model of prayer that I had growing up was every day at the end of a football practice, our, our coach would bring us together and he would teach us a, an extensive vocabulary lesson using every four-letter word he could think of. And then he'd say, all right, boys, hold hands, let's pray. And we'd pray the Lord's Prayer. Y'all, that, that, that was what my mind thought of whenever I prayed. The, the other one that shaped me growing up was my grandma used to pray for me every night. And she'd pray this prayer every single night, and she taught me to pray it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Y'all, I was five. I was five. You wonder why I had nightmares. I'm sitting there thinking, am I going to die? <laughs> like, like, I'm still seeing a counselor about that one. Or maybe my favorite ritual prayer is, Good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. Right? Anybody else? How about this one? How about this one? The best one of all time. Dear eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus. I don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, so omnipotent. 
we just like to thank you for all the races that we've won, the 21.2 million, love that money, that we've, accrued, that we've accrued over last season, also due to the binding endorsement contract that stipulates that I mentioned Powerade in each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious, and it cools off the hot summer day, and I look forward to Powerade's new release to the Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Thank you for all your power and grace, dear baby Jesus. Amen. Woo! Right? You know, that's what most of our prayers look like. If I'm honest with you, we, we say silly prayers before meals. We pray for travel mercies. I don't even know what the heck a travel mercy is. We, we, we pray and we, we listen to, if you're like me, some hypocrite that just cussed us out and went through all this practice. And then at the end of a football practice, he prays for us. So I, the traumatizing prayers that we get before we're kids that we don't, we don't really even want and understand what they're talking about. No wonder that prayer is, for most of us, the most complicated thing. And we don't even feel comfortable praying. If we're honest, for just a second, most of us have pretty pathetic prayer lives, don't we? D.A. Carson said, if you ever want to shame or embarrass the average Christian, just ask them how their personal prayer time with God was yesterday. The fact is that prayer is meant to be the most natural form of communication, and no, none of us, most of us, don't understand how to do it because most of us weren't taught to pray. So right before Jesus's, or right after, I'm sorry, right after Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he teaches the disciples how to pray. And over the next several weeks, what I want to do is I want to go line by line through the Lord's Prayer, and I want to give you some real practical and helpful tools in your tool bag to let you begin to learn how to pray. Today, we're going to look at the first couple lines of the Lord's Prayer, and if you will understand what Jesus is saying, watch this, prayer will be transformed into something you have to do, into something you get to do. That, that's the goal of the whole sermon series. It will move from something you have to do to something you get to do. So as we jump in, let me give you a little bit of a background by setting the table for you on three practical ground rules for praying. They're the same three that Jesus gives the disciples, all right? Here's number one. Prayer isn't a performance for an audience. It's a connection with God. Here's what he says in verse five, Matthew 6, verse five. Listen, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Y'all, Jesus cares more about the secret place than anywhere else because in the secret place, you're heard by God and not seen by others. Now listen, it's not that you only should pray in secret. I'm gonna show you this, but it's the motivation of the heart behind why you pray. I can't tell you how important this is. How many of you know people that pray these long prayers and they change their voice and they get real deep and they get super theological and they pray out loud? Like, I'm like, who are you? Right? When you pray, you turn into a totally different person. You see, the religious dudes back in Jesus' day, they used to pray like that too because they wanted a platform in front of people. They wanted to look smart. And because of that, here's what he says, is they used God as a means to an end, and in the end, they didn't get God. They got the performance of people. Here's the deal. Prayer isn't hard when you get what you're doing. All you're doing when you pray is communicating with God. That's the end of prayer. And if you pray like that, what you get at the end of it is you get God. Y'all, I need you to get this. You are designed 
You were designed to be in a relationship with God. It's what completes you. See, the, you know, I do a lot of weddings, not as many anymore, but I, I, I hate the phrase, you complete me. No, you don't. You were never meant to complete me. Matter of fact, I, I say this at every wedding that I do. The reason why the majority of weddings, or the reason why the majority of marriages fail is not because you fall out of love with one another. It's because you were taught to love each other too much. You were taught to complete one another, and you're never going to do that, and you're going to be crushed under the weightiness of that. God is meant to complete you. And when God completes you, then you can enjoy one another and all your flaws, because I got, a, I got just good news for you. You ain't getting any better, okay? And it's difficult. And if you look at one another to complete you, guess what you're going to do is you're going to fail one another all the time. God completes you. You are made for God. And the reason why so many of you feel empty is because in your spirit, you're designed to be divinely connected to your creator. So check this out. In Genesis chapter one, when God created us, you remember the words he says, let us create man in our image. That's Trinitarian language, and that's really important because what you're seeing here is that God, if you can let me be theological for a second, has always existed in community with the Trinity. That means that if you are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, you were created to be in relationship with your God who has always coexisted in relationship, which means that you're not meant to be in isolation. I, I just read the other day that the, the, the newest stats say that we are the most isolated people who have ever lived right now. That, and it's getting worse. We're on a steep decline of isolation. You know, the end goal of life is relationship with God, and that's why God made you to be praying. Now, now listen, this is why this is so important. If the end goal of life is relationship with God, watch this, this is so important, then that means that oftentimes your suffering is not God being mad at you, but he's drawing you back into dependence on him. It's actually the most loving thing he can do. That, that, that reframes everything. Because what God cares about most is connection with you because you are more than just this moment in time. You will live for all of eternity. Like, like I told you a couple weeks ago, God doesn't need you to pray. We need to pray. You get this, right? God is lovingly inviting you to meet him face to face, and that's what will complete you. A man meeting with God like a son or a daughter meets with their daddy. God is inviting you in. See, if you pray to be seen by other people, God won't see you. Other people might see you, but God won't see you. If you pray to be seen by God, you will connect and be completed by God. Stop performing and start connecting is number one. Here's number two. Prayer doesn't need to be impressive. It needs to be authentic. See verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Listen to me, God's not impressed by your extensive vocabulary. I don't know if you know this or not, but he wrote the dictionary in every single language. He knows it. When you heap up empty words, you're doing it more to be impressive than authentic. And what God cares about, what God cares about is your heart, not your thesaurus. He doesn't care that you understand big old words. I'm telling you, the key to being real is being authentic. And, and you wouldn't... I wrote this down. I don't, I don't know how this is going to come off. You wouldn't talk to your mama like that. Why would you talk to God like that? Do you know why you talk to your mama that way? Because you're comfortable with her. So it's natural, flowing relationship. And while I'm here, let me say this. Some, 
Some of you, and I'm not making fun of you, but some of you say, like when you pray, you say God's name like every third word, like he doesn't know his name. What, you, what, what ends up doing is you're either very uncomfortable or you're trying to be impressive. But let's talk about real conversations. Like imagine if I was talking to my wife, and I'm like, hey, Allison, would you go to the store, Allison, and pick up some Gatorade, Allison, on the way, Allison, can you do this on the way home, Allison, so that we could hang out, Allison? It's, it's weird, right? It's not real conversational tone. God just wants to hear from you. He just wants to talk to you. See, what we have to get out of our minds is this formality, and we need to just start praying. It's not to be impressive, it's to be authentic. Which leads to the last one before we jump into this prayer. Listen to this. Number three, prayer is about relationship, not need. This one might be the most important one. Look at what Jesus says. And do not pray like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, I don't know about you, but this phrase right here messed me up for a long time. Here's my thought God, if you already know what I need, why am I praying? (laughs) Have you ever thought that? Like, what, what are we doing here? I think that's a pretty legit question. Here here it is. The heart of prayer. Watch this. God knows what you need because he's a good father. You don't need to pray for God to know what you need. Watch this. You need to pray to confess that you know that you need God to give you what you need. It's a posture of your own heart to say, God, I know that you know what I need, but I need you to know that I know that you know what I need. I'm serious. Sometimes you got to tell yourself. Sometimes you got to confess it. God, I know you need you. I know, I know that you know that I need you to provide for me. But I need to remind my own soul that you are the one who provides for me. Right? Teach my soul to, to confess this out loud so that I can rely on you. Yo, you need a prayer life that is a posture of submission to him. And sometimes you need to tell your head that you need God. That's what relationship's all about. It's not about getting something from God. It's about building a relationship that is dependent on God so you can lean in on him and pray. So so these are the three ground rules. They're real simple. Jesus tells them, if you want to have a healthy prayer life, you need to remember these three. Three things. Prayer isn't about performance, but it's about connection. Prayer doesn't need to be fancy. It just needs to be authentic. And prayer isn't about needs. It's about relationship. Now with that, let's walk through the Lord's Prayer. The very first line is where we're going to hang out today. Here's what he says. Jesus tells the disciples, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is one of the most beautiful lines in the entire Bible, and yet for many of us, maybe one of the most difficult lines in the entire Bible. Let's break it down. Okay, first word, our. It's the first time and the only time in the Gospels that Jesus uses that word, our, instead of my. He says, our Father. It's actually quite a fascinating thing. He's creating a union, a relationship between you and God. Every other time in the Bible, Jesus says, my Father, my Father, in my name. Then he says, hey, when you pray, here's what I want you to understand. He is our Father. Jesus starts this prayer off by putting you in a union or a relationship with God that is equal to him. Think about that. Your relationship with God, they're not, it's not just about saying empty words to a God who's distant. No, he's your father. Think about how significant this is. You have the same daddy as Jesus. The same one. You are in the same family as Jesus. God the father is Jesus' father and he's your father. You are in the same family. Romans 8.14 says it this way. For all who are led by the spirit of God are what does it say? Sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba in Greek, it's the most intimate way of saying Father. He's saying that you now get God as your daddy. He's not just father, like distant. No, he's close and he's intimate. When Jesus died for you, he purchased your redemption and then he adopted you into his family. That means that you have the same name as him. You are a child of God. Which goes on to the next word, right? Our father. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world that describes God as primarily father? They think he's not creator, he's not glorious, and he's not all powerful. He is father. And so if you had one word to describe God in your life, that one word should be dad. You see, when Jesus went into the final courtroom to go for your redemption, check this out. What he did in that moment is he transformed the courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. It's the most beautiful thing ever. When he died in your place, he called you into his family. And y'all, if I can just be real with you, I get how hard that is for some of you. For many of you, that father wound can be the most extremely difficult obstacle for you to come to God. I'm telling you, it might have been mine. In my entire life, having a father who was absent and not, and I don't have, I don't have a single good memory of my father was one of the most difficult things. But hear me, my dad was not a nice guy. But hear me, the only reason why I know what a bad father looks like is because somewhere deep inside of me understands that there is a good father. You cannot understand what good is and you cannot understand what bad is unless they're opposites of one another. You understand what a good father is because God is a good father. He is the only reason. It's the only logical reason that you understand that your dad might not have been lived up to a certain standard is because God is your standard and it's built into the fabric of who you are. You wouldn't get that your dad was bad unless you understood that there must be good. And Jesus tells you that you have a perfect father, perfect in every way. And you can lean on your heavenly father and you can experience the goodness even if your dad wasn't good. You have to understand that. Everything changed for me on December 13th, 2013. When Allison woke me up in the middle of the night and she said, I think my water broke. Y'all, for for a first-time dad, that was panic moment. Panic. So we gathered all of her stuff up, and we we drove to Duke Hospital where Emma was going to be born, and then we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited. Six and a half hours into active labor, the doctor looked at Allison and said, I need you to trust me. I'm going to stop talking to you. And we've got to get her out immediately. She, she hit a button on the wall. The crash team from Duke Hospital comes running into the room. And 30 seconds later, Emma, Emma is out, but she's not breathing and her heart isn't beating. They didn't let me cut her umbilical cord, which was like the moment that I had looked forward to. And they grabbed her. They took her over to the corner. And me and Allison are sitting over here in a panic until 30 seconds later or so. We heard her breathe and start crying for the very first time. I kid you not. I walked into the bathroom in Duke Hospital in the room, and I fell down on the ground, and it was the first time in my entire life that I had ever had a panic attack. And I just uncontrollably lost it. I walked back out of that room, got myself together, held that little girl, and everything changed. It was like the first time in my entire life that I understood what God the Father looked like. 
Don't, don't tell Allison this. I'd never loved anything so much in my entire life. Just holding this precious child that belonged to me. I loved her so much, I had three more. <laughs> Y'all, I thought if God can love me half as much as I love Emma Marie Lowe, then he must be a good father. Because in all of my flaws, in all of my mess-ups, I'm a dad and everything changed. In that one moment, I wanted to be a better man, a better husband, a better friend. I would sacrifice anything for her. And I just thought, God, if, he, if you're anything like that, you're a good father. And he's so much more. Jesus tells you, you can call him father. Listen, he gave you life. And like I said earlier, if you, if you ever wonder, God, and, and, and this should be a rational thought that comes in your mind. God, why would you create the world like this? If you knew that it was going to be as jacked up as it is, why did you let me live in it? Listen to me, listen to me. You got to get this. It's the same reason why you continue to have kids. Even though you know the world is messed up. Because somewhere deep inside of you, you know that life is still worth living. Right? You know it. Now think about this. God loves you so much. He says, even the angels long to have the relationship that you have. You realize you're the only being in all of creation that God calls you son or daughter. We, we like to magnify angels as if they're like this beautiful thing. Like, no, first of all, they're, they're, they're terrifying. But second of all, they long to have what you have. Stop telling people that when they die, they're going to become angels. You're minimizing what God has created you for. You're always going to be a son or a daughter of the king. And you are the most treasured possession in all of God's cosmos. And he looks at you with just this beautiful, loving smile, like a child that he, he cares deeply about. He loves you. And the same reason why you continue to have kids, because you understand that life is still worth living. Don't forget that. God looks at you and he says, you are still worth having. Even when the world is messed up, he's like, I understand that one day, one day it's all going to make sense to you. Right now you don't get it, but what I need you to know is that I love you and I'm a good father. You are his child. Don't ever forget that. Primarily, that is your position in this world as you are a child of God. Now, let me talk really quickly about dads. Next week, moms, your week. We're going to get there next week. But dads, listen, you have the highest calling on the planet, okay? By the way, God has entrusted those little ones to you. Here, here's what that means. I, I think you need to hear this. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. He has given them to you as a stewardship, and your highest calling is to give them back to God one day as worshipers of Jesus. That is your highest calling in all of life. And if you ever want to be a pastor, an elder, whatever, that is one of your qualifications. How do you do with your family? Here, how are you doing with that? How are you doing? I'm telling you, God does not care that you made it to the C-suite at a Fortune 500 company if your kids grow up hating Jesus. God does not care that your kid was on the 7U travel all-star team if they grow up hating Jesus. God does not care that they were the Valley Victorian of their high school if they're so enlightened that they hate Jesus. Y'all, and all those are good things, but they are not the primary calling of a family on their life. How much do your kids know about your love for Jesus? How, do they, how much do they watch you pray, depend on, and lean into Jesus every single day? Dads, 
We have a dad problem in America right now. Some dads are absent from their homes because they traded in their wife for a new one, like an old used car. Other dads are just absent emotionally because they're, they're having an affair with the golf course or whatever, the travel team or the, 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 the job or you name it. Do you realize this? When dads are present, everything changes. Listen to this. These are real stats. When dads are present, active in the family, 90, the family is 90% more likely to go to church. Kids are twice as likely to go to college. They're 80% less likely to go to jail and 75% less likely to experience teenage pregnancy just because a dad is present in the home. Listen, there's an all-out attack on dads in society right now as if they don't matter at all, and you do. G.K. Chesterton, I love this. He says, the triangle of truism of the father, the mother, and the child cannot be destroyed. It can only destroy those civilizations who disregard it. You want to fix most of the problems in society? Fix the dad problem. Protect the family. Protect the marriage. Encourage dads to be present in the family. Y'all, God is not dumb. We, we, it, it works. Even if it's not popular, it works. I'm telling you, men, your kids need to see you loving them affectionately caring for them, loving their moms, going out on dates regularly with your wives. They need to see you take the lead as a spiritual leader in your home. And that doesn't mean you need to be perfect. I remember I was in Thailand with some friends um, a couple years ago, and I was like, guys, I got to confess something. Like, I really struggle to get up in the morning and lead my wife to a prayer and like a quiet time, and I don't know how to do it. And I'm telling you, these were my spiritual mentors, and they laughed out loud. They're <laughs> like, bro, you got kids. It's not that easy. Like, give yourself a break. You don't have to have a formulaic system of doing things. Just let yourself and the rhythms of your life take over whatever works best for you and lead well through that. What they need to see is they just need to see you prioritizing Jesus more than anything else. You are called to lead. God has stewarded you this great gift. And if you will lead it the way that he has called you to, you will change the fabric of this world. I promise. All right, back at the text. Our father, notice his location in heaven. See, God is a father, but he isn't like us. This is really important. He is in heaven. Here's the idea. God is spirit, which means that he is utterly different than you. And in theological terms, we call this an anthropomorphism, which means that we put human terms on a spiritual God so that we can relate to him. So we call him a father, but he is spirit. He is utterly different than us. He is outside of time. And that is good news. He is so different from you because his location is in heaven. Now check this out. The reason that we pray in Jesus' name, if you never knew this, is because as God the Father is in heaven, you have Jesus sitting right next to him, interceding on your behalf. So every single time that you pray in Jesus' name, you're saying, God, as you're interceding for me, I want you to go before the Father for me. See, in the Old Testament, and it's never changed, in the Old Testament, you need an intercessory, you need a priest to go before God to make a sacrifice for you so that God could accept your worship. Well, 
Jesus, the great high priest, put on flesh so he didn't sacrifice an animal. He sacrificed his very self so that a man could stand in the place of a man. And so forever and ever and ever, that perfect sacrifice, that great substitute has went before you. And now forever and ever and ever, you can look at your great high priest, Jesus, and say, God, I need you to go before me and I need you to pray on my behalf. And God the Father says, I will accept that perfect sacrifice. And so forever and ever and ever, you can come before God the Father because of Jesus. Now, because his location is in heaven and he is a father, you need to get the juxtaposition here. He is both intimate and transcendent. He is both your father, which makes him close, and he is in heaven, which makes him almighty. You need him to be both. In order for God to be God, he has to be both intimate because you have to be close enough to be known by him, but he's got to be big enough and powerful enough to actually do something. It's like I tell my kids, my, my, my son, Elliot, he knows that I'm close enough to him, that I can hug him and embrace him and comfort him. Yesterday, he was in his final baseball game, and, and Elliot, uh, he's pretty good at baseball. He does, does a good job. Yesterday, he struck out every single time, didn't hit a ball, and he sat in the dugout just weeping. And I just went in there and I said, hey, buddy, why don't you not go out this time and just sit with me? And I held him and I told him, all the failures that I had had playing, and which I love this. He thinks I'm a superhero, so he doesn't think I ever failed. And I told him how, like, you have to embrace failure, and it's okay. Like, I'm proud of you. And I wiped away the tears from his eyes, and we just held each other for a little while. Elliot needs to know that his dad's going to do that. But he also needs to know that his dad is big enough and strong enough to protect him. See, if, if I was all loving without being protecting at all, I don't know if that's good enough to be a dad. If I was all protection without any love, I don't think that's good enough to be a dad. Jesus is saying that God has to be both. He's got to be loving enough to be embraced by you. Like Islam says that he's all powerful, but he's not all loving. Other religions say he's all loving. Think about like all your liberal kind of religions of this world. He's all loving, but he's not powerful. He needs to be both. See, when you pray, you pray to him as your daddy, but don't forget that he is utterly different than your daddy on earth. He is big enough to handle your biggest problems, and he's loving enough to want to handle them. Like I said earlier, it's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls God our Father. See, you have full access to God through Jesus. You are adopted to him as a son or a daughter of a king, but don't forget who you're talking to. He is not like you. I, I tell my kids all the time, bro, I am not your friend. I'm your dad. And that means sometimes I got to do what's best for you, even if you don't like it. And one day, maybe when you're like 35, I'll stop being dumb and you'll start to realize that what I did is because I was passionately for you. You got to understand, in the most practical ways, God wants you to speak to him through intimacy and reverence. Both of those are necessary. Here's what I mean. You should pray to God knowing that he is your daddy who cares about you. That he knows everything about you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. There's something intimate about that. But you should also pray to him as him being your dad and not your equal. Which means that there should be some reverence in which you come to him. Do you realize the positional authority that God should have in your life? You know, he's not your pet Jesus that you put in your front pocket that you pull out anytime you need. He's not your magic eight ball that you shake up anytime that you need something. And if you relate to God like that, you might just be using him. You might just want what he has to give you and you don't actually want him. Evaluate your prayer life. I've said this to you before. If you looked at all your prayers over the last 24 hours, would anybody be in heaven or benefited in their lives besides you? 
Y'all talk to God like he's your father, and that will change everything. Now watch this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed just simply means holy. Holy means set apart. Listen, God's name is holy. It is set apart. It is utterly different. You know, when I was growing up, anybody else like this, um, when you were told don't take the Lord's name in vain, that meant don't say GD, anybody, right? Can I just tell you, that is absolutely, ridiculously, theologically not what it's saying. Now, I don't recommend that you go around saying that. It's just disrespectful. But that's not what taking the Lord's name in vain is. Here, here's what it means. When, when Allison and I got married, I, I remember the day. It was July 30th, 2011, and the doors of the church opened up, and she started, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen with my eyes started walking down to me. And all I could think about in my mind as I stood on this altar is, I wonder when she's going to connect the dots that I got the better end of this deal, and she's going to turn around and run away, right? And she just kept walking and walking and walking. And then she got down here to the altar. We took each other's hands and we said a bunch of promises to one another that I don't know if we ever thought we'd actually keep. And, and the pastor looked at us at the very end and he says, I now pronounce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. William Lowe. Now, if you just connected the dots for the first time, like my kids, that my name is William, you're welcome. Um, now imagine we walked out of there. We went to Montego Bay, J Jamaica for our honeymoon. And imagine that two days later, I, I come up out of the resort and I see her with another dude. What's the very first thing I say? What do you do? Like, we're married. She'd have taken my name in vain. See, what taking the Lord's name in vain means is you decide that you are going to give yourself, be adopted into the family, and then you live as if that's not your name. No, from that moment on, July 30th, 2011, my wife's name was Lo, which meant that she got everything that belonged to me, poor girl, and I got everything that belonged to her, right? And forever and ever and ever, we are united together. What Jesus is saying is when you don't understand the holiness of God, whenever you tell your, your friends and everybody else around you that you're a Christian taking his name and you don't act like it, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. God is holy. And he takes that seriously, and so should we. See, Martin Luther, he said this. He said that the Lord's Prayer, when you pray it, the very point of it is that you should start with adoration in everything that you do. You should begin with this idea that you are speaking to a God who is holy and reverent, but he's also your father. There's something significant about starting off your prayer life knowing that you are talking to God in a sacred place. Matter of fact, this should frame all your worship. Think about Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. See it? For our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews, this is what he says about God. He's a consuming fire. Think about that imagery for just a second. What does fire do? Fire brings warmth. But if you get too close to that fire, it will burn you. You've got to have the right relationship with Father, with fire. You, did you know that, like, guys are pretty simple people. Like, we, we're not that hard. Feed us, let us sleep. And sometimes if you just put a fire out there in front of guys, here's what you go, ooh, look, a fire. Like, we just kind of all gather around this thing. It's, it's, it's majestic. I'm telling you, you throw a fire anywhere, and guys will come from the four corners of the earth, and they'll just stand around it like this. Hmm. And that's what we do. That's it. We don't even talk. And it's a beautiful reality because we understand one another without ever saying a word. Oh, here's what we're thinking. That's fire. That's it. And we're like mesmerized by it. 
Fire, seriously, if you're close enough to the fire, what does it do? It, it brings you warmth into your life. If you're too far away and not relating to that fire, well, it's kind of pointless. That's what God is saying about himself. If you understand that God is holy, that means that your perfect relationship with God actually changes the course of your life. And if you don't take that seriously, then God becomes a consuming fire, like a wildfire that will absolutely destroy everything. When you take the Lord's name in vain, what you end up doing is you have not a contained consuming fire, but things are out of control. The main reason that many of us struggle to pray is because we really struggle with positioning God in the right place in our minds. I I think that this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to show you just how big God is and how personal God is, and you need both. You need a God who can handle your greatest problems, and you need a God that's loving enough to want to handle them. He wants you to understand the location of which he is, because listen, God's not like you, but he loves you. He wants you to get his holiness, that he's utterly set apart, perfect in all of his ways, so that you can relate to him properly, so he can bring warmth to your life in ways that you can never imagine. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Now, let me land the plane. I'm going to do this every week by giving you a couple practical ways that you can begin to pray. So I want to give you theology, and then I want to give you application, okay? Here they are. Here's three ways that you can build a rhythm of prayer into your life this week. Here's number one. Real simple. Start with adoration. Here's what I mean. Before you ever say a word to God, I want to challenge you this week to take two minutes to think about who God is. Okay, I think this will change everything. I think this is what Jesus is trying to get you to do. Let me give you a couple of them. Colossians 1.16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Here's who God is. He is a creator. All things, all things were created by him. Listen, there is no infinite regress. Something started all of it, and his name is God. He stands outside of time, and he speaks into time. I love that C.S. Lewis, he used to talk about time linearly on a sheet of paper. So if you have 1800, 1825, 1940, you you get it? And and here's what he'd say, is if you actually understood time properly, God can be all places at all time because he's off of the sheet of paper and he's looking down on time outside of time, which is why he can be in 1840 and 2023 at the same time. You and I live in the paper. He is off of it. You have a God who created all things, knows all things. He knows your future and he holds it in his hand. What you think about, A.W. Tozer said, when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Do you understand who you pray to? For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1.3. He, now we're talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you realize that only kings sit down when the war is over? Jesus is seated and he is comfortable Think about the picture here, the radiance of the glory of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. 
If you ever want to relate to how does God the Father look, just look at the person of Jesus. That is who God is. Now check this out. He upholds the universe by a word of his power. Did you know that we are 93 million miles away from the sun and they say that if we are 1.1% closer to 92 million miles away from the sun, you wouldn't be alive to even talk about it? If you were just a bit further, you would freeze to death. If you were just a bit closer, you would burn to death. And yet you are in the perfect position to be sustained with life. Jesus upholds the universe in perfect position to sustain your life. Every single thing he does puts you in perfect relationship with him so that you can flourish in this life. Y'all, you were talking about the perfect God. You're talking about the one who spoke life into existence and he spoke into this word and it's the same God that speaks a better word into you and calls you sons and daughters of the King Most High. You are talking to the one who spoke life, laid down his life, and now is seated at the right hand of God saying, it is finished. That's who you speak with. Now listen, all that's good. But 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love God, I'm sorry, anybody who does not love does not know God, watch this, because God is love. See what he's saying? Love's not an attribute of God. It is who he is in his essence. You know love because you know God. You know how to evaluate love because you looked at God. This means that the only way that you can actually know what true love is, is by looking into the eyes of the Father. Think about who you are praying to. The all-powerful one is also the one who declared that he loved you till the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See that? God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave up his only son for you. You know, you have a God who's big enough to pray to and intimate enough to want to be heard by you. He delights to hear from you. So that's number one. Number two, these will go quicker. Have a conversation. Listen, don't over-spiritualize this. I love this. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he said that prayers should be short and continuous conversations that you, like you'd have with a friend. You, you, should, you should probably set aside some time to pray, but really when you're in a relationship, you're always talking. You're always texting with your wife or your friends. You're always having short conversations where you're talking together. And that's what Paul means when he says pray continually. It's not like you sit in a state, in a, a mon- monistic state where you're by yourself. All, no, it's just you're continuing. God, I'm about to walk into this place. I need your help. God, hey, thank you. Thank you that like I just didn't get hit by that car. Or man, I'm so grateful that when I ran that, never mind. Um, those are the prayers that I pray often. <laughs> Sometimes we pray like we're praying to a dignitary but you should be praying to a dad, right? You have scripts when you go talk to the king. You have conversations when you go talk to your father. Number three, pray together. Pray together. Listen, there are times when you need to retreat and pray. Jesus did that. Like, I get that. But do you notice that the majority of times, prayer is a team sport? Disciples, what do they say? God, teach us how to pray. Now look at in your Bible, look at the pronouns and every line, they're plural. 
give us this day, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. The entire thing is meant to do together. When you pray together, it's, it helps one another pray. I'm just telling you, you encourage one another, you intercede for one another, and, and, and when you pray together, you help one another understand how to pray. But honestly, I think, I think that the thing that keeps most of us from praying, if we're honest, is that very first line. It's our positional relationship with God, our Father. I think God wants to break through some of that space in some of your lives today. You know, about 10 years ago, I was driving down I-40 in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as clear as I can remember, the, the, the most clear God has audibly spoken to me in my life, I heard, call your dad. <laughs> if you knew the background of who my dad was, I was like, no way. It got louder. Call your dad. No call your dad. God, do you know who he is? Like, do you know the abuse that I went through? Do you know what has happened in my life? Call your dad. I picked up the phone. I could, he would not get out of my ears. I called my dad and I told my dad, it's the first time I talked to him in years. And I said, I love you and I forgive you. And he said, I don't love you and I don't forgive you. Hung up the phone and I thought for a moment, why did you have me do that? And through the stillness of that moment, here's what I heard. Because I will never be like that to you. No matter what you do, you need to understand that you have a Father who's in heaven that loves you and will never forsake you and he'll be with you to the very end. It was almost like God was trying to comfort me. Billy, I know that you had a father who was absent but you have a father who will never leave you and I will never be absent from you. You know, I, I just think that there's a moment in time where all of us need to, to wrestle with that reality. I don't know what your father was like. Some of you had great fathers and praise God for that. And some of you had dads that just didn't live up to the standard that God called them to. But what I want all of you to hear is you have a father who's in heaven that isn't like that. Even for your good fathers, he's even better. He called you, he cares about you, and he wants to hear from you. Right now, at this very moment, Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit is sitting in that place next to God, praying for you right now. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. The Spirit of God is praying words that you don't even know how to pray. And they're sitting there at the mouth, with their mouths, at the, uh, the ear of God saying, that one. Luke is mine. I need you to guard him and protect him. He belongs to me. Robert McEachern, listen to what he said. What he said. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Your father in heaven is praying for you. As you sleep at night, he's praying for you. And he's inviting you to pray with him. See, knowing this changes prayer for something you have to do to something you get to do. And that's what I want you to start doing. Praying through conversation to one who wants to, delights in having you as a son and a daughter 
of the king. Let me pray. Father, thank you that whenever the disciples asked to teach us to pray, you took the time to teach us. Lord, even in that, it's a beautiful thing to know that you want to hear our voice, that you delight to hear from your children, that you want us to come into your throne room, that you want us to lay in your lap like a child does a father, and that you delight to be our father. Help us, Lord Jesus, not to feel like we have to be impressive or all-knowing or smart enough or whatever the case may be, but that you care deeply about us because of what you did for us. You have adopted us into your family and that you love us simply because you are our Father. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.